Welcome to Access Ideas. This is Yana, and today I'm pleased to share an extended interview with Brian Asinja, or Asinja as you'll hear. Asinja is the CEO and co-founder of the Dream Galaxy platform, an innovative studio that trains, advises, and funds ethical entrepreneurial leaders to launch, grow, and scale inclusive innovations. Today's conversation covers a diverse range of topics that focus on and relate to what Asinja calls the cashless society, which in its broadest sense reframes how we as individuals and communities allocate, invest, and exchange value. This concept is already transforming transactional relationships within countries and communities around the world, and I couldn't help but feel excited by the possibilities. The time flew by for me in this conversation, and I think you'll find it a fascinating perspective compared to conventional ideas about finance. Asinja's forthcoming book, Cashless Society 101, will be published in March 2022 and includes topics we discussed today and much more. And now I bring you Brian Asinja. Welcome to Access Ideas, Asinja. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Jenna. I'm really interested in having you on the podcast today to talk a little bit about something that I'm relatively new to, the idea of a cashless society. And I understand that you have a lot of background in this. You advise other businesses and organizations on this idea. And you actually have a book coming out as well, Cashless Society 101. So I'd like if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how your ideas have come together and what your philosophy is on this topic. Sure. Well, I'm Brian Asinja. I go by Asinja. And uh, originally uh, from Uganda, I'm currently uh, speaking to you from New York. And I guess uh, by way of educational slash work background, I'm electrical and computer engineer by training. I did about two and a half years at the New York Stock Exchange right out of undergrad uh, and mostly transitioned to entrepreneurship slash business because I started my uh, the company uh, immediately, I, I suppose, one year after graduating. Um, we've uh, worked on a variety of, of, of products and solutions. Uh, our first project was uh, a Dream Galaxy, which was originally Dream Africa. We've since rebranded to be more inclusive. Um, th- that's really an educational media distribution platform uh, that distributes culturally relevant or culturally responsive media and in audio and video format. And I suppose in the future, we'll do 360 or AR content. And mm-hmm. our goal is to help people see themselves in educational media or media they consume. That could be news. Uh, we partner currently with about 500 uh, higher learning institutions across Africa as as uh, one of our major contributors, and we hope we'll continue to interact with other uh, content producers soon. Wow, that's quite a transition, though, from software engineering. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you decided to pursue Dream Galaxy and, yeah. and something so different than you originally studied? Well, I wouldn't say it was so different because um, I think. You know, even even my job at the New York Stock Exchange wasn't necessarily software development oriented. I was uh, primarily in the enterprise architecture division, and that was mostly being like a middleman between business and um, 
one could say the developers. So helping translate what the business needs were in a, a, through technical documentation so that developers would then be able to develop applications that actually meet those um, requirements or needs. Uh, and, and sometimes that included regulatory compliance kind of checklists and so collaborating sure. with security. But I think, yes, it was a big jump to then say media or, or let's just say uh, even like building a company. Uh, but I think at that time, 2013, to be specific, digital pub publishing was becoming a thing. There was a lot of buzz around self-publishing, around digital publishing, around uh, traditional publishing sort of becoming, you know, some kind of old way of doing things. Uh, and, and I remember just uh, curiously, because I always just asked, at, I was at a networking event in New York uh, right after work, and I just asked somebody, so if I had like a small African folk story, could I just throw it online without having to go through a publisher? And they say, yeah, and that's a good idea. You should do it before somebody else does. And then, and then I thought, <laughs> geez, like if this guy believed in me, like, yeah, why don't I do something about this, right? So uh, I think the core need that I was trying to fulfill at that time was just the lack of representation in media. Mm -hmm. um, I love film. I was consuming a lot of content. I still do today. But I think it's always been a challenge of uh, how do you create as much as you consume? How do you make sure that uh, with all these narratives out there, um, you're still being represented and seen? And so we, even though we started trying to be a studio, maybe like a, a Disney for Africa kind of thing, we realized over time that other people were reaching out to us to see if we could distribute the content. And, and we realized that distribution was sort of the bigger problem that as much as people want to create and co-create, mm -hmm. uh, nobody's really giving them that outlet or that distribution that they need. And so that became sort of the, the shorter focus. And that's how we've, uh, but long story short, we're more focused now on ed educational media as opposed to just strict entertainment. Because right. we do think that in the future, educational media will still be entertaining. And so it still covers a broader array uh, of media. So I would say it wasn't so different in two ways. One, we were still able to uh, apply a lot of technology background and actually developing the software. So I actually reached out to my college friend, uh, Franco Abbott, who is also originally from Kenya, but is now Kenyan-American, uh, and said, hey, you always wanted to do something for Africa or about Africa? is still interested, like, let's do this thing. And, and lucky for me, he said yes. Uh, and long story short, we, we're still business partners and we've really uh, been able to ride the roller coaster that is uh, entrepreneurship. Um, so I, I quickly wanted to add two other sub services we offer in addition to the media distribution. Sure. Uh, so one is the Dream Galaxy Advisory, and that is, again, just more of a, a management consultancy uh, for other entrepreneurs, uh, where we provide both business strategy as well as uh, support for fundraising. Um, the third one that's pretty much launching this year, actually this February officially, is the Cashless Society Syndicate. And that's going to be a way to bring uh, investors uh, to entrepreneurs and help fund uh, ethical and inclusive innovations. So uh, it's almost like a different way of doing traditional VC investing. Uh, but on a deal-by-deal -deal basis using special purpose vehicles. So I would say that's that's Dream Galaxy in a nutshell, right? Media distribution for culturally relevant media, um, business advisory, as well as uh, now uh, helping uh, investors get access to capital and other kind of support. Great. And at this point, 
are most of your clients um, and the users for Dream Galaxy? You mentioned uh, initially the African audience. Uh -huh. What other countries do your clients and, and the audience for Dream Galaxy, uh, where are they? Yeah, so if we look at the numbers which we now have. Uh, actually, I would argue China is number one because wow. so, uh, there's a lot of interest in, in Africa uh, from China. Uh, I would say U.S. comes in second because we're U.S.-based uh, with a subsidiary in Nairobi. Uh, and that I do envision down the road, Africa will sort of become the bigger uh, uh, sort of uh, demographic. Um, but we've, we do, you know, we're starting to accept content from all over because one of the criticisms we got early on was for a company that's trying to be inclusive, we should not restrict ourselves to a single continent. And I think that is uh, globally true in a sense that there's a lot of Africans or people of African descent or African influence, uh, you know, in major cities all over the world. So uh, that global rebranding and positioning has just made it easier to just be a place for inclusive content and, and, and inclusive innovations. And it's a little bit easier to have those conversations then with everybody without just restricting it to an African lens where people may think it's just for Africans, or some people may be African, but they don't know how African they are. So it kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, am I still African if I haven't visited in a while? But, you know, sure. so you kind of help eliminate those barriers and invite people in for a conversation. And, and that's been an easier way to, to, to benefit from the rebranding. Well, one of the ideas that I find incredibly powerful that you've talked about is exactly that, breaking down barriers and specifically this idea of the cashless society uh -huh. um, and, and how so many of our financial transactions and certainly the history of financial transactions in the so-called Western world are constrained by all kinds of limits and barriers and regulations. So do you want to talk a little bit more about what the cashless society idea is and, and who your intended audience is for that? Not just the book, but I think the idea yeah. itself is quite powerful. So if you want to elaborate. I'll start off with the idea. The idea has two simple definitions. And one is an extension of the definition in the been around since the 60s, where a cashless society is really uh, a society or one that prioritizes or prefers electronic transactions mm -hmm. over cash or paper-based transaction. So one clarification I like to make is that the conversation extends beyond cash. So it also refers to uh, maybe uh, nowadays with travel, uh, electronic airline check-in or electronic uh, hospital visits via video. Um, and, and that is becoming almost the norm as we've seen since COVID, mm. uh, where digital transactions are just becoming increasingly critical to any business or institutional service delivery, including governments. Uh, I think tax filings, all these things are becoming digitized almost overnight, which is great in so many ways, and we can dig deeper. Um, the second definition is uh, less technical, is somewhat philosophical, and I added that uh, for personal reasons. Uh, and the definition is basically, you know, cashless society then becomes a society that does not use cash as the basis for assigning value. So... You mean fiat currency? Fiat currency. Yeah. Uh, and that can be value in terms of just the value of exchanges or values of service delivery or values of assets like land and water and, and air and really any resources a community might have. Um, so that 
whether or not there's a demand for something should not have a bearing on on the value of something, which is a purely capitalist way of looking at at something. So uh, for communal societies like Africa and Asia, and one could argue most of Latin America, um, that becomes increasingly important so that communities can still protect their resources uh, without being sucked into um, the capitalist uh, ideal that is full of of its own complexity, um, but rather that these communities can fundamentally learn to understand the, the the inherent value of resources within their community, even before being uh, transitioned into a capitalist system. Um, so I think that is particularly relevant to Africa. And I know you had asked about regulation or other factors. I'll try to tie the two. Um, because in Africa, I think the biggest challenge is the West tries to set a price for Africa when I, I argue that Africa is priceless. Uh, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's... So just, just to clarify, when you say the West tries to set a price, do you mean on specific resources or services or like anything that comes in general out of Africa? and specifically well historically they've set a price on the value of human beings in Africa yeah. uh, they've continued to set a price on uh, the value of resources gold diamonds yeah. and oil yeah. uh, including saying part of that cost is maybe uh, the assassination of African leaders which is which is you know a fact documented uh, in, in, if you can look at uh, declassified uh, CIA files to, to that effect uh, if we look at art, um, they put a price on that, saying that Africans are incapable of preserving their own history and, and culture and art, which is false. And that's why m- millions of art pieces are still in global museums from the Met to perhaps the British Museum. Uh, we're seeing some of that being returned. But again, mm-hmm. these, are, these, are, these are the facts of, of, of today and the reality. So that's the perception of value being communicated or um, arrived at by an external party without regard to really, um, as I mentioned, the priceless value of the art, of the resources of the people. Uh, mm. And by people, we, we refer to the talent, but also the, um, you know, the future <laughs> legacy and the sustainable uh, um, key contributor to the uh, population in terms of both innovation and also the marketplace, because ultimately it is uh, the populations become the market for goods and services. So mm. I think that 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 external valuation, if we were to call it, um, is the, the 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 deterrent. And so, it if you did it the opposite way, where Africa was strengthened more and more to communicate its own value or what it thinks it's worth, and maybe that became the standard, then only then do I feel like there there will be a, a more equitable world. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we see that with China and we see that with the Arab world, where they can communicate unequivocally what they think they deserve. And mm-hmm. ultimately, despite the West's resistance, they do at least get some level of respect. So that's what I mean by uh, the external valuation. And it sounds as well like you're talking about the legacy of the slavery and colonial power and influence within Africa and how that has evolved to dictate or identify value external to Africa even today. Correct. Do you want to talk a little bit about your philosophy around how how your ideas have come together 
um, that might not be a traditional Western philosophy. Well, in fact, it is not a traditional Western philosophy of uh, economics. Maybe go into a little detail about that because I that's really important. Here. Yeah, thanks for asking. I think I'll I'll go a little bit back because I'm a history fanatic. Uh, so I think this idea is actually started uh, when I first wrote my first book, The Last Digital Frontier, and that's documenting like the history and perhaps tries to predict the uh, how science and technology might evolve with it, with uh, in Africa, uh, especially from an African perspective. Um, and in that book, I discuss four main ideas or, or themes that I then somehow extend in Cashless Society 101, uh, now more focused on a global audience, obviously. And those key ideas are identity, ownership, trust, and scale. Uh, mm-hmm. And identity then, uh, to me, means uh, philosophically both the traditional uh, sort of uh, cultural identity, but also language, especially when we think about technology language is increasingly becoming relevant um, in how people communicate online as well as offline, but how we translate that language and allow communication across languages will continue to be relevant. Um, Ownership, uh, but also one could say technically that includes digital identities, right? Your your email, your password, your your passport. Um, But to me, it's the cultural lens that often becomes more powerful and and, and critical to interactions. yeah, sometimes I feel like identity is conflated with individuality in in and that's a very uh sort of popular that's a western, western idea yeah. and and it's really important to um to distinguish that here because identity is so much more than the individual person. Yeah. And 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 I wouldn't say it's a purely western way. I think in all societies sure. actually uh the individual has a role it's more so that in Western society, the individual is, I want to say, lied to, <laughs> that they have more power, <laughs> that they come first before society, um, which I suppose can make sense in an ideal sense, but practically somehow then becomes difficult because the individual spends most of their time in school, which is a communal institution. Uh, in at work, which is an institution, you're grouped and you're working with coworkers and colleagues. So there's still what I call social dynamics all around you, and yet you're told that it's the individual focus that's the most important. So I think uh, we often focus on the individual part in Western societies to the detriment of the need to train people to be better collaborators, uh, to be better communicators, to be just better at getting along with other people. Because actually, 90% of the time when you're at school, or even if you're home, you're still staying with people unless you live alone. And, and, yeah. and again, that's still in a city like New York, most people do share pet apartments with other people. So I think the social interactions, maybe let's not call them communal, because people might think we're speaking of communism. I think that social interactions or social groupings are much more common than individual settings for most of our lives. and mm-hmm. so. To me, the individual focus becomes important when we think of agency and the idea that an individual can decide what is right and what is wrong and take ownership of their own decision-making. That's a powerful mindset. But I don't think that's unique to the West. I think it's supported in the West. It's just not unique. So I think what makes, to me, the uh, uh, communal mindset of, of either Africa, Latin America, or Asia that much more important 
is the recognition that an effective society actually then understands the existence of individuals, but also the relationship among the individuals of the society, and then tries to create a foundation, a framework around how those relationships can then be developed or maintained. So where the individual perseveres or thrives on the West is, one could say, from seeking their own individual freedom and their own needs and pursuing their own dreams. That might be um, acknowledged. And, And perhaps more of that could exist in other societies but it doesn't mean that's the the, the, the the ultimate solution, right? It should not come at the no. price of the social uh, no. foundation. And I think, you know, certainly with COVID-19, uh, we've seen the extreme limits of individualism exposed when uh-huh. they're pushed to the brink, where people argue, some people argue for individual freedoms, overriding the well-being of the group, uh, the community, certainly here in Canada, there's very heated discussions right now about people who are not getting vaccinated having to pay an additional tax around uh, health care because they're technically costing um, taxpayers more money for their health care or they, they are more likely to. And I'm really interested in in this idea of, you know, what are the limits of individualism? Because I see a lot of problems in uh, our current culture that individualism doesn't solve everything. And as yeah. you said, um, there's countries that could still stand to benefit from individualism and individualistic policies. But I feel um, sometimes we're ignoring other really important ideas around connection, community, um, who are we in the context of our ancestors, of our relationships, right. who are we in our in our society, aside from, because really, everything is in relationship. I mean, right. our value is always in relationship, and as, as I see it. So I think this is a really powerful idea of a cashless or a digital society, and I think sometimes people see it as simply exchanging currency. So one of the things I wanted to address was, you know, when you hear the word cashless, some people think, oh, that just means using cryptocurrency. Uh, And certainly cryptocurrency plays a role here, but maybe you want to clarify where where people might think they hear the word cashless and think, well, that just means using Bitcoin. Sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, let me quickly rephrase uh, or answer the question you had asked around who is the book for. So the book is primarily for young people, maybe 20 to 30-year-olds, that are really just beginning to think about their lives and what they might do or want to become. And and I would argue that then uh, the secondary audience becomes us adults, recent graduates, working people, parents, uh, policymakers in particular. because it's it's really the, uh, in short my own journey in trying to understand what doing the right thing means, especially uh, across different societies. And I've had the privilege of just interacting with people from almost all corners of the world, having gone to an international high school with kids from over two hundred countries, and living in New York, probably one of the most diverse places in the world. Um, yes. So I think doing the right thing means so many things to so many people, but. Part of the question, and, and, and coming back to the concept of, of 
of of uh, value exchange and 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 cohabitation and and, and sort of uh, social interactions. Um, to me, you know, and this had started again in my first book, uh, The Last Digital Frontier, where I had thought about, well, before cash, let's think of life before cash, uh, where you had barter trade. I'll give you one cattle for, or 10 cattle for a piece of land, or, you know, we'll figure it out. I have something, you have something. I have excess or surplus. You have a uh, uh, you have a need. How do we fulfill each other's needs and trade across kingdoms and cultures? And and you know, so there was trade, and uh, one could argue then currency as a concept of fiat. Um, I mean, it's been around since you know long time. Coins and you know all kind of coins and and uh, perhaps uh, kings' approvals or stamps being valuable for certain transactions. You know, so I'm saying that. Uh, you know, fiat is only as important as the trust society places in it. Right. So cash or currency is only as important. Um, part of my argument and part of the idea behind Dream Galaxy has been that in the future, it's culture, the cultural currency that will be increasingly be more and more important because culture somehow brings that trust with it. Yes. Yes, and and so all of a sudden you have a, a sense of value, you have a sense of belonging, you have a sense of ownership, and we'll get some of those sub themes. Um, but so that's kind of what I mean. That fundamentally, cashless then means it's not just about cash. It's not just about fiat. That it's actually about values and things people uh, prioritize. You know, sure. you you go into any society. It could be a union of employees. It could be a high school. And you ask them, what do you really care about? Forget money. What do you really, because we often use money like, money like technology is just a way to do something, right? It's a means of exchange. Mm -hmm. So what are we really trying to do with it? Nobody wants money to just sit on it and lock it in, you know, on TV looks cool. Like I'm going to have a mattress full of dollars and then I can just sleep (laughs) on it for one evening. But that's not the, the ultimate use of money, right? Like we all no. kind of want to go beyond that initial satisfaction of like, look at all this money I have to then deploying it and, and like putting the money to work as, as they say. So to me, it's like getting back to that question of why do we need money? What are we trying to achieve with it? And can we achieve it without money? Because not, uh, if you think about emerging markets, for example, um, the cash way hasn't worked, you know? Mm-hmm. We look. If you look at colonialism, you look at post-colonial, uh, and now all these de- development sort of uh, uh, initiatives by the World Bank and others, they are looking at it from a cash perspective of we're going to require X billion of dollars to solve a particular issue. Yeah. But often it's a social issue that maybe doesn't even need money, and they never look at the other side yeah. of the equation. You have a personal story about your own experience with cash and corruption, uh-huh. as I understand it. Do you want to mention that? Sure. Um, so I think, I mean, as probably as old as I was six, I've just grown up kind of exposed to, uh, my dad worked for the city clerk and specifically he did uh, land surveying or land valuation. So if you're buying a piece of land, uh, his office would then tell you which neighborhood you're buying it in, was residential, commercial, uh, what taxes you might pay, uh, you know, 
and the kind of business or, 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 or infrastructure you could build on a particular set of properties. So uh, dealing with title deed record keeping and other things just brought a whole lot of complexity. And uh, from time to time, he would um, just be arrested. And, and I imagine it was the corruption within the office, but they often scapegoat somebody lower level because uh, then the big guys don't necessarily have to get arrested. But that just became a norm where, you know, something would happen and he would be in jail and he'll be out and he'll be in jail. And the very people who put him there would then perhaps pay, pay off the prosecutors. So in, it was one of those things that just happened, but nobody was ever, nobody ever really paid the price for the corruption. It was more of a, a public stunt that happened just predictably, cyclically, mm -hmm. uh, where mm -hmm. somebody just had to go to jail for a day or two and then some, you know, I don't know who else would be paid off and then things would blow over. And, and that still happens today. And that's kind of the norm. Um, the worst case scenario uh, for me, at least the breaking point was when I was coming to the U.S. and I needed um, some local document uh, revalidated, you know, that I was born there to, to be able to obtain my U.S. visa. And uh, somebody who happened to be a former English teacher was working as a secretary for a local council chairperson and uh, was directly asking for a bribe for me to then be able to get this document to satisfy that I was Ugandan. And, and so having grown up, I mean, this is the first time I'm trying to leave a country. I've never left it. So it's, you know, I've, I've known this, whole, this one country my whole life. And, and even that becomes a cash transaction of like, no, you need to pay us something for us to prove that you actually who you say you are so that you can go do this thing that you want to do. Forget that you qualified for those programs, forget that you have a scholarship, forget all these other factors that should really be important. It still comes down to cash. And, and obviously I walked out of the room. I think somehow, long story short, my mom found a way to, to deal with it. Um, mm. Obviously apologizing that I was young and naive and did not know what was going on. Um, so I think about all those things of like, what does that show to it? 13-year-old, 18-year-old, that this is the world you're exposed to and you're told that that's how it should be uh, when I try to argue that it shouldn't, you know? And I feel like the moment you start participating in it, I think for me it was like, if that means I don't have to go study abroad, then I'm not going, but I don't want to participate in, in an act that I know once I start down that road, uh, ultimately, there's no turning back. And so those kind of moments where cash has been almost a barrier to mm -hmm. progress, uh, despite qualifications, academic or otherwise, uh, has really allowed me to, to feel like they ought to be a better way because that wasn't yeah. necessarily adding value to my life. Uh, if anything, it was standing in a way. And so I have a very sort of personal relationship with cash or money where uh, I'm often not overly impressed by money. No. Uh, it's like it, it's there to serve a purpose, but mm -hmm. don't let be the, the end result because society still exists outside of it. So that's for me is the, the ultimate meaning of this philosophical definition of cashless is to say, let's put the cash equation or conversation aside. What are we trying to achieve without it? And if you can't have that conversation, 
then there's really nothing worth discussing, in my opinion. There ought to be a bigger debate or a bigger goal beyond the cash. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the complications, of course, of currency, of, of cash-based transactions or even digital transactions is tax. Uh-huh. And you know, governments use tax to pay for public goods, public services. Um, do you see that as possible in a digital or cashless economy? Absolutely. Uh, one way I answer that in the book is to say even Jesus acknowledged for Christians or, uh, you know, give unto Caesars what is Caesars. So I'm not advocating in any way for tax evasion, uh, although I would advise smart tax filing. So always get the best accountant <laughs> you can. doesn't hurt. Uh, but I think there'll always be a role for government. There'll always be a role. And there again comes the issue of shared ownership. So part of the, at the end of the book, I do talk about shared responsibility and in, in individual agency. So as an individual, your agency is what's important and, and you're deciding to do the right thing. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I often, I think I try. And, and as a company, we try to embrace that philosophy. So how do institutions as well then recognize this shared responsibility model? And I think taxation is just a perfect example of that. You're paying individually into a social institution mm-hmm. whose primary goal Well, in America, I suppose we try to spin it as I pay taxes, so it benefits me as an individual. But really, the correct way is you're paying taxes into an institution that will create social programs and solutions. Uh, But from a capitalist mindset, somehow that's perceived as socialism. So it's still reframed as so you can benefit as an individual because somehow that's more appealing. But if you would have figured that out as an individual, then you would not need to pay taxes. Well, know. this is the the funny thing about libertarians. I always ask if they're willing to build their own roads and have their own fire stations and police stations. And yeah, there's so much that on we as people, yeah, that we benefit from the common good. Um, and certainly, again, I'm going back to the example of COVID. We benefit when people that we don't know and will never know are healthy and not sick, um, because once we see, for example, right now there's there's a big peak in um, COVID cases because uh-huh. of Omicron, and many of us um, are affected simply because teachers, medical staff, employees are sick. So it's it's not necessarily that we ourselves are suffering with the illness, but that effect is so obviously amplified right. when we see this example. And um, maybe you can talk a little bit about the alternative. So one of the examples I really thought was interesting in your book was the use of something called M-Pesa or MP is M-Pesa, that my yes, print M-Pesa in Kenya. Uh, and then East Africa. So maybe talk a little bit about that and the use case and advantage versus uh, the West African cash banking uh, yeah. practice. Yeah, so the the idea of connectedness, which is really at the core of, of some of the philosophical arguments we've been having, and be, that becomes the linkage to this technical solution we're looking at, right? Connectedness, as an individual, you're sending money to somebody. As an individual, you're sending money to family. As an individual, you're paying a business or you're paying your taxes. Um, So I think the internet or technology has become very, very useful in connecting us and facilitating so many experiences and transactions that we wouldn't do otherwise. 
and and the one powerful example then that I share is Ampesa, which is a simple text-based system. All you need is a, a, a what they called a feature phones. It doesn't even have to be a smartphone. Your old Motorola, your old Nokia, like the oldest, oldest version of a phone you could think of. Sony show. Ericsson, the <laughs> old brand globally renowned, would do really well in this in this uh, field because all you, all you need is the ability to send a text message. And so to think about that for a society like Kenya and and, and now Uganda, where you know I grew up where financial literacy was just a distant concept or business ownership was just socially not supported. And now to have trillions of dollars, literally the, the first and largest mobile banking ecosystem in the world being based in Africa, um, that's now continuing to scale, mainly because they have embraced um, the simplicity of design, as I mentioned, all you need is the ability to send a text message, but also mm-hmm. localization from a language and culture perspective, where now you can send a text message in any language and still be able to do banking so you don't need to be an expert in English or French, which is often the case for most African, sort of depending on your colonial history, that mm-hmm. that becomes the bondage that links you to progress because you cannot detach yourself completely. A uh, quick contrast in West Africa, and the reason for the success in, in East Africa was because Kenya has embraced a more, well, I don't want to say Western, but let's say progressive uh, sort of laissez-faire, let innovation happen to benefit society, which is the ideal for a cashless society, right? Technology is fulfilling its role of benefiting society, uh, as opposed to in the West where they're saying, no, uh, let innovation exist to benefit capitalism, where we're going to protect existing banks to almost have a monopoly on banking. And so for you to get a digital banking license, you then have to first register as a traditional bank. So we are only going to support traditional banks to mostly innovate uh, in that space in in West Africa, as opposed to Kenya or Ethiopia that are embracing telecom companies, fulfilling the role of banking because traditional (laughs) banks are not innovating enough to cater to the masses. Uh, And that's a big, big just exposure of of just the difference in policy and, and government responsibility and how regulatory policy can actually shape uh, the level of innovation and the scale. Uh, part of the challenge for West Africa is also, uh, if you, especially for Senegal, and and I would argue, um, part, you know, parts of Nigeria and uh, Morocco areas, is they have this uh, CFA, uh, which is a French currency that uh, I think as of now is is trying to be phased out and and be replaced by an ECO, which is almost like an ECOWAS, which is economic uh, countries of West Africa. In, in oh, short, okay. that's what, so like a regional, yeah, regional body of about, yeah. uh, I suppose, six to 10 West African uh, member states. And so the, the challenge with the CFA, which is a French um, mandated currency by origin and design, is that it is backed by African currency deposits in mm. France. Wow. You know, trillion, uh, or one could say billions or trillions of dollars. Uh, on a ratio of, I think it's about 80 to 20, 20% of the reserves are in Africa, 80% are in France. So again, that mm-hmm. goes to show like, do we really need this money or currency or fiat where we don't even have ownership or control of, its store, of the, the underlying asset backing it? 
uh, and we have to rely on another country to validate our value or our economic value. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. Um, so I think part of the the bigger challenge and opportunity for disruption is migration away from what we can call it what it is colonial currency mm-hmm. um, to more African defined or more uh, decentralized currencies that then really embrace the ideals of communities and bake into that value. So I think that's the bigger trend, and and perhaps the it moves beyond M-Pesa, and I was seeing a lot of this in 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 crypto and and these kind of blockchain innovations, uh, where African governments are saying, well, okay, let's research these opportunities. Uh, one other currency, uh, I, I I suppose I mentioned in the book is Acoin, uh, mm-hmm. started by Acoin, uh, uh, the, the musician. I was ambassador for that. I think what they're trying to do is how do we have a single currency for Africa that's digital uh, and supports entrepreneurship because there's still challenges around cross-border trade, uh, obviously taxation and and just the ability to um, handle uh, currency exchanges alone is very complex when you're doing business across borders in Africa. Uh, the African Union obviously is aware of this and, and is, is also has its own ambitions to support cross, cross-border trade digitally and via blockchain. Um, and there's reasons for that, right? One is uh, when you digitize an ecosystem, um, uh, statistically, you, sell, you, have an, you realize a cost savings of about 80% wow. uh, from That's a paper-based kind of system. So for Africa, that has a, a long history of not having a lot of... Um, or having a lot of paper-based record keeping, uh, mm-hmm. including traditional fiat or colonial fiat, this becomes a big win because all of a sudden we can have uh, 80% cost savings. Well, hopefully some of that money goes towards healthcare and education and other services. Um, but then the other advantage is the traceability of digital systems and digital transactions. Exactly. That for me becomes critical in finding yeah. fraud and corruption uh, and other um, misuse. Uh, we can call it budget misuse because a lot of pa- pa- uh, parliament or national budgets often go underutilized for so many reasons, one of them being lack of accountability. So that becomes the, the promise of technology. You can have the um, traceability and, and then beyond M-Pesa, right? So why crypto not M-Pesa, one could argue. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say Mopesa becomes your phase one, becomes your last mile of access. It works for everybody because you don't have to have complicated. It's more inclusive because you can reach the most people because not mm-hmm. everybody has a smartphone yet. But beyond that, the crypto interface uh, really allows like a permanent record exactly because it's on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. So now if the government says they spent $10 billion on education, we can go and see where those $10 billion went and then zoom in on the educational department and say, well, where's your ledger? Where's your record on how that was spent? Like part of my dream, which I doubt I will live to see this, but I think it, it's already happening in um, uh, Taiwan. I, I actually met the Taiwanese digital minister in New York a while back and they were presenting on how they've advocated uh, uh, open, open government as a concept. Wow where the citizens actually meet on a weekly basis with members of the budget office and will have proposals or recommendations on how they wish their taxes should be spent within their community. And that budget is voted on publicly, transparently, online, via website or app. And then that money is allocated and then reports are made 
regularly on how that's being spent. So everybody in the community knows exactly where their dollars are going. And it's just revived their civic engagement and had this uh, just sense of ownership that, wow, yeah. you know, people can pay their taxes, but also they get a direct say uh, ultimately in how some of that is spent and they get more visibility into that. So for me, it, you know, it's it's a dream to maybe one day see like an African government say, we will provide digital visibility or traceability into how your national budget is being allocated. Maybe not to the last mile, but imagine the government needs to only point which departments are getting which amount. Then the local governments need only to, you know, point out to which departments within the local governments are getting that amount, right? You can just have a layer, you know, a drill down kind of uh, visualization and, 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 and we don't have to trace it to the last dollar, but you can imagine at least to a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, hundred thousand, a million dollars. Can we see where those dollars are going? And I think that could really allow communities to know where to spend most of their time and energy in terms mm-hmm. of how the, the, the cash is being allocated. Um, and earn trust amongst and address because to me it often points to what society considers important. If we yeah. think cash is the indicator, so why don't we just use the cash as an indicator <laughs> of what we yeah. value then, uh, as yeah. opposed to hiding it? If we're telling everybody cash is important, why is it so hard to have more visibility and accountability around it? Great point. Great point. And going back to what you were saying earlier about the cost savings simply by switching to digitization, this really addresses another topic that you talk about, which is banking the unbanked, approximately 4 billion people. So all of that cost savings actually can go into empowering individuals to conduct transactions through their phones or other means. Um, and, And there will be more of that. But I just find that mind blowing because it is it's so powerful to think of people who previously didn't have access to conduct their own transactions in a regulated environment or a, a transparent environment. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that could potentially transform communities as Absolutely. well? Absolutely. Yeah. Again, I like to use my own examples, but I, part of it is I know. These examples resonate to a lot of my friends, a lot of uh, Africans out there, even though we're very different and complicated. Well, I grew up without a bank. I would argue my parents probably didn't have a bank account until later on in their lives. And that really creates a different dynamics where you don't do a lot of financial planning. You don't have a lot of savings. You don't do a lot of investing. You don't do a lot of um, safety nets for the family and, and also socially. So. To see that in, a, in my generation or 30 years later, which is not a long time, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm 33, uh, that our generation or our kids, you know, everybody can grow up knowing banking. And that's something I've been just very excited to, been very excited pushing my family towards that of like, I will, you know, moving forward, even if I'm sending you a gift, send me your digital, you know, wallet ID or like, let's just, cause then there's a receipt of, I don't need to know. They, they, you know, I will know when they receive the money as soon as they know, cause it's all real time, but there's also just a connection element to it. That it's not just, just digital excitement around banking. 
that all of a sudden we can talk about financial conversations and say, you know, start having conversations around saving and 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 investing on like use of 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 money for business purposes or or how do you grow your balance? You know, you have a balance on your on your phone. Okay, maybe initially it was just donation based, but how do you make sure it's growing and you're actually earning as opposed to mm-hmm. just being a donation based society? So I think it's it's you know yes four billion sounds a lot globally. Africa has about one point three billion people. I would say only less than twenty five percent of that should probably have banking, probably mm-hmm. lower than that, uh, maybe ten to twenty percent. And so, for digital banking to capture the the other billion across Africa, and we're seeing the same in Southeast Asia uh, and Latin America, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, it also means, by the way, beyond banking, it means better tax. If we go back to the government, if we want to make the government happy, it also means better tax uh, uh, collection capabilities. Uh, U.S. federal government, for example, just passed a law under the Biden administration. Any digital transactions over $600 has to be uh, reported to the IRS, which mm-hmm. means they'll have more visibility into uh, you know, what people are making and how they can pay taxes on that income. Uh, but it also means, ideally, if we flip the coin, we can say we can demand more accountability from our governments to show us how they're spending the money and that benefits society. So I do think that banking the unbanked is just the first step to effective service delivery, because when you start with financial access, um, you can bundle on the transparency that comes with it, the financial literacy education that comes with it. And now people understand insurance, people can understand savings, people can understand investments. And and we can really finally, I believe the next decade uh, or two, it does take time, will usher in a new era that is just aid independent Mm -hmm. uh, or donor independent. There will always be room for aid in a disaster scenario. Sure. Um, but the idea that, that Africa or most emerging markets are constantly in a disaster scenario uh, is just a Western lie that, uh, thanks to technology, may one day become history so that uh, well-meaning donations and, and grants and you know, uh, contributions actually go to support uh, communities that need them. But individuals become introduced to... Um, the underlying value of, 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 of currency, which is value exchange, mm-hmm. and that they can then learn to say, how do we acquire more of that capital that we need to transact? And thankfully that it won't just be cash um, used by the mafias and the corrupt, that it will yeah. be some more transparent and ideally ethical currency or means of transaction. So that seems to be the upside of, 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 of a cashless society. Uh, but only if we design it the right way. So I think that's really what excites me, that it's just the, the financial banking or banking the unbanked is just the beginning. It's like giving them internet. And yes. then they realize, wow, there's a lot more things on the internet beyond the email that I just received. I yes. can set up an, an e-commerce store. I can pay my taxes online. I can go to school online. and more importantly, uh, I can have a financial plan for my kids and for my descendants. So it does allow for long-term thinking beyond where do I get my next donation. So when you think big, where do you see 
that capability expanding and enriching the lives of communities, people, countries, regions? When I think big, while I go back to the fundamentals, um, I think education, I just Mm -hmm. mentioned it. Uh, If we think about it, how how technology is going to just benefit learning especially cross-cultural learning, which I'm very passionate about. Forget this colonial education that, oh, you have to know English to learn. Uh, that world is long gone. You know, one of the examples I give in the book is India, for example, where Google is supporting localization and, yes. and you, all you have to know is Hindi. Can you talk a little bit about that example? I thought that was quite good. So, yeah. so in India, um, the, 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 their government, uh, and despite... Every government has some criticism. Uh, but one thing they've really been uh, doing consistently over the last 10 years has been embracing more of a digital India ma- mandate. Um, so they started with a, a digital identity program, biometrics digital identity program, collecting millions and millions of records in, in terms of uh, registering people so they can get digital access to services. Again, that was a way to fight corruption, where, as I mentioned, uh, just proving yourself in emerging markets can be a challenge. So tackling identity was critical to make sure we know how many citizens we have, how many people are in which county, which district, and how do we deliver effective services. The second phase was then to empower and digitize government departments and institutions. Uh, and I think they are doing a slow but steady progress around that. Um, I mean, we've seen communities benefit from electricity, internet connectivity, you know, it's still a long way to go, but again, um, they've come a long way. So much so that in, in the 2020s, uh, they now have a, a law where foreign entities in India cannot by outright become a majority owner in an Indian company. So wow. I think it has to be probably less than 10%, something non-influential ownership, they call it. Um, mm. It's a form of protectionism, yes, but I would argue... Sure. Uh, that's the antidote to a colonial monopolistic sort of uh, 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 way of doing business that started with the British monopolies. Uh, if we think of colonial, uh, the royal uh, charter, they would call it. You'd get a charter to be the exclusive operator of sugar canes in the Caribbean, in a particular country. Um, so that kind of monopolistic colonial monopolies often exclude local economies. Um, or local participants from participating in an economy and actually extract the value by way of cash out of the society. So India's antidote, and we're seeing that in Rwanda and, and other countries that are learning that, is to institute, a, I think they have about a 2% tax on uh, foreign investments. There's more, um, more compliance around registration. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, foreign institutions cannot directly do business in India. They have to buy or invest in a local entity. So Amazon has to buy an Amazon subsidiary or or local company that's, they now have more of a franchise model essentially to say, we will then provide the capital for these Mm -hmm. Indian companies that often will employ Indians, local Indians to then actually do the work. Uh, So it's it's just great program across many areas because local talent then becomes developed both from a financial perspective, but also from a labor, just traditional labor context. So that is India in a nutshell. I mean, there's other examples, but we won't get into deep into depth because of lack of time. But there's other examples around how the entrepreneurs then within India are also saying, 
Uh, one of the quotes that I love is um, from one of the leading entrepreneurs where he says, why should the West have all the fun? You know, <laughs> why should only America and perhaps the UK have billionaires when we have billions of people that we can bring online and provide email and e-commerce and, and transport? And you're going to see, you know, obviously electric vehicles and scooters and 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 telehealth. I'm mentoring a lot of young people in India working with uh, tackling diabetes and, and, you know, huge, huge challenge where a lot of people are losing their legs almost every year. Millions, thousands of people um, because of lack of access to, uh, you know, uh, orthopedic kind of care. And so there's a lot of challenges. The other exciting thing you asked, what what is that feature that I imagine? Uh, you know, I see health beyond financial access and, and literacy, then healthcare becoming a big deal. Uh, in Rwanda, for example, uh, uh, there's a founder that I was mentoring. Uh, he founded uh, Karisimpi Technology, uh, and he mm-hmm. actually just won a 25,000 grant uh, from an, organi- uh, an event that was organized by Kagame, uh, the Rwandan president. So he's tackling digital identity in healthcare. How do we manage electronic health records where they're traditionally mm-hmm. paper-based in Rwanda or across Africa? So that means every time you visit your doctor or you go from one hospital to the next, they don't actually have your records. That's right. And they either have to call in or ask you to come back or they lost them or they were damaged in a fire. And that's a big deal for somebody who needs urgent medical attention that has to be accurate because it's a health concern. So digitizing health records uh, is going to absolutely, absolutely usher in a new era of better healthcare access, uh, obviously reliable prescriptions, and um, I think ultimately he will be rich, needless to say. But that's after the fact that he did this to benefit his society and, and is just practically applying the technology skills he's learning in schools to, to solve local issues. So I think that's the cashless society I envision where it's people creating local solutions with a local context uh, that can become almost very effective as opposed to waiting to import uh, which is the technology transfer model of, mm-hmm. oh, we are a large management consultancy, let's call it the Marquise model. Therefore, we're going to license you this electronic medical records software from the U.S. Works right. really well, um, but doesn't translate to local languages or does not support these unique use cases. More importantly, takes the money away from the country rather than supporting local innovators. So I think we're seeing a lot of those trends begin to change where local entrepreneurship becomes the antidote to a colonial legacy. And and again, uh, this kind of cashless uh, philosophical, let's call it ethical leadership, both from government uh, and entrepreneurs themselves, focusing on inclusive innovations, either culturally, cultural inclusion, but also just uh, demographic inclusion in terms of population, um, becomes really, to me, a much more impressive foundation you know, and, mm-hmm. and somewhat more exciting of like, here we are now impacting millions of users overnight um, in, when, when government traditionally would have taken another five years evaluating the best electronic medical records company from abroad. And maybe someday will work when the money runs out, the population is left without something, right? So this creates a, long, a culture of longevity uh, and forward thinking that is much needed. Um, across the world so that we start to look beyond uh, what I call urgent problems. Not everything is urgent, 
somebody mm-hmm. needs to to plan for the future. We can't yes. always be putting out the fire of today. There is a future after today that we need to always be thoughtful about if history has taught us anything. Absolutely. One of the topics in your book that you raise is the adoption and adaptation uh, can sometimes lead to uh, creative destruction, mm. which you call an unfortunate consequence of progress. And I think it's important to address this because some people are inherently fearful of technology or new way of doing things. You know, the the stereotype is mm. the Luddites who destroyed um, the first <laughs> automated or mechanized looms, I believe. Right. But there's many people who will hear about this and say, oh, but this will... Um, and any and in many countries will hear about a new automated system and say, well, this is going to take away jobs or it right. will destroy our system of doing things that is that is, you know, finally functioning after many, many years of refinement. Do you want to comment on that idea of how innovation um, might initially create destruction of some old ways of doing things? And what's the underlying benefit or the reason you should persevere? Yeah, so um, I I actually had an interesting uh, conversation. I'll get to my own perspective. I want to start with another person's points of view. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with Dr. Jose uh, Ramos, uh, uh, who was um, who is um, a founder of Ad Astra Media, and, and they are working on inclusive uh, uh, media focused on integrating a NASA kind of in direct partnership with NASA, how do they make NASA's image extend to reach uh, like the Latino community in the U.S. and other um, what I call the now global majority? Because uh, uh, I think statistically we have more non-white babies being born in the U.S. So, um, but how do we make sure that we are training people? Because it comes back to social engineering and the message we're putting out there. Um, that technology isn't a problem, which is the, one of the big sub-theme within my book. Uh, technology is neutral, and, and it's human beings that are biased. And, and because we're biased, we have to be careful how we design systems because we transfer the very values we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. of identity, of ownership, of trust, and scale. You know, scale meaning how many people should have access to this platform? Should it just work well for 10 people and then crash when we reach 100? Or do we go them and pass away so it works for everybody? So those values are what we extend to the design of technologies. And I think that the fear is often because we um, lack trust in the people roll, rolling out technologies or building them. And, and part of the antidote for that is our co-creation models. Uh, engaging communities, as I mentioned, these innovations, electronic medical records innovations happening in Kigali, Rwanda, or the digital internet services happening in India because they're Indian-owned, because they're mm-hmm. Chinese-made, because they're Rwandan-made. All of a sudden, the trust is not as a big deal. These are local solutions. We know these people. They are our neighbors. I went to school with this person there's all of a sudden social trust and cultural trust that is just priceless. It has nothing to do with cash. Again, it has to do with these human values. So that's a big, big, big factor. Uh, But also um, the fear is natural. It's normal. We can't say we will eliminate fear, 
we can just improve its interpretation. Mm-hmm. So part of the things I touch on uh, again really quickly is the U.S. way of innovation is innovate fast and then self-regulate r- later. Right. So it's almost like the government only comes in maybe when somebody dies. And even then, it would take us another 10 years, as I share with the Boeing example, where the Federal Aviation Authority clearly knew there were issues with the airlines, and they did not do anything until this day fails to subsequently enforce its own recommendations. And and these airlines kept crashing, even though when Boeing Advisory Board knew there was something faulty. So I call that the America way of doing business. I don't know how popular that is going to be in America, (laughs) but that is the truth. Uh, so the American way of, of doing business becomes very cash fast. And and you might say that's just capitalism unchecked, right? right? Because whatever costs less and whatever profits more is is the way to go. So and I should mention that with the Boeing example, of course, that was in the news. So many people may remember, right. and this is outlined in your book, um, where Boeing really didn't withdraw. Or, or make any attempt to correct what they knew was an existing problem causing airplanes to crash uh, until they were forced to do so by regulatory bodies. That happens in many industries, uh-huh. you know, even in the automobile industry. And it's it's simple capitalism where if you're a company and you're going to pay a small penalty um, for faulty equipment, um, even if that happens to kill a certain number of people, the equation only tips. You're only willing to with recall those those vehicles or that equipment if either A, uh, the lawsuits cost you more than the recall, or B, the PR and the bad PR could impl- uh, impact your sales and therefore cost you more than the recall. So I, th- I think that's a really um, fundamental problem. Yeah. And, and so your, your concept of trust that you talk about is so fundamental to this. Yeah, and I, and I think the, the media plays an important role in part of that. The media attention, definitely exposure and that mm-hmm. traceability. Again, if it's done electronically, then maybe, I mean, let's look at, you know, WikiLeaks is another example is uh, in there. Um, I forget the name of the guy who licked it. Well, WikiLeaks was Julian Assange, but there's another, the, the ex-NASA analyst who's now in Russia. Oh, Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden. You know, mm-hmm. and there's this big conversation around, well, was it worth it after all these years? Has society even learned its lesson? Um, is he a traitor or, or, you know, a patriot? You know, and I say none of those things matter. What matters is we got the information we were, we needed to know, mm-hmm. which was related to trust of you're giving away too much information and I would say unchecked power to institutions that are digitizing your whole ex- existence yeah. uh, and you absolutely yeah. have no say into that. And yeah. if that's okay in a society that claims to be for independence and, and privacy and rights, then you know my, my, my critique is always to call attention to the illusion illusions or dilemmas of freedom, of trust, of ownership. Like when you say you own, when America owns something, who really owns it? In America, that means a certain company. Because mm-hmm. even America itself is a corporation, it's some institution. Like 
yes, it's by the people, for the people, but really the charter itself stipulates that it's a corporation. So the government services are often subcontracted to private institutions, as we've seen with um, a prison system, which is gone amok. The healthcare system yeah. ultimately is beyond, uh, you know, is it's an all it's an only because you have to think twice before you even think about seeing your doctor. So, you know, absolute capitalism itself isn't in its purest form the answer. Mm-hmm. But social awareness and 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 activism and and regulatory policy and media attention, uh, what I just call basic crit- critical thinking, mm-hmm. uh, is really the antidote. We're not saying we're going to fix all these problems overnight, but we can embrace a society that 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 questions things, that that challenges things, and that's the beauty of science. That's the beauty of openness, where it's not because I question something all of a sudden I'm anti-American. You know, what, sure. what Boeing did may have been endorsed by America because it was silent about it, but it doesn't necessarily make it American. No, and to be fair, that has happened in other countries. Right. So, But what do you think will incentivize people to aim for equitable practices if they are not open to that today? Is is there anything you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think people are open to that. I think people are told they're not. Uh, right. But I think, uh, you know, part of the, the, the dilemma of life is uh, you don't really care about something unless it's personal. And so uh, both governments and one could say modern tech companies are depersonalizing service delivery depersonalizing uh, education, depersonalizing every experience so that ultimately you feel like you have no control. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, one of the other podcasts, somebody mentioned that we can actually be co-contributors or co-creators because just as much as there's bad people creating bad Mm -hmm. uses of technology, we need uh, the good guys also building equitable and inclusive innovations. Because mm-hmm. again, technology is neutral. So I think the incentive is to say, do you want to be a part of the future internet? Do you want to have a say? Do you want to have some level of control? Do you want to see your values reflected in what the future looks like? And um, I argue that the resounding answer is yes for most people. Um, mm-hmm. So the future is actually going to be inclusive and culturally relevant. Because the innovations themselves are going to be created in these communities uh, from what I call the global majority, because they would have a personal connection to being historically excluded. And it is their mandate and, 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 and it's really their only option to be participants and co-creators uh, for them to even have a say, because otherwise the past stays the norm. And they already have a sense of that. So I think the incentive is going to come from a sense of uh, just a need for belonging. It's going to come. It's it's more of a philosophical incentive, uh, primarily, which is this. Well, an evidence evidence that you are already part of uh, the solution or yeah, the system part that of can the solution. engage. Yeah. And and the beauty with that is it's self fulfilling because. Uh, as I mentioned, you're seeing that in India. Why should the West have all the fun? Uh, you're seeing that in West Africa. Why should France dictate our destiny? 
You're seeing mm-hmm. that in, uh, I mentioned with the, you're seeing that in East Africa to say, wow, this stuff works. Okay, what is the next Mpesa? How can we support that? So it's it's once you take that first step, then the society is able to benefit and see the the, the benefits and become mm-hmm. co-participants because the success is really their success. All of a sudden, it's no longer something external. And I think that's the power. So perhaps the government's role, if any, becomes to create that environment that protects that. And one of the arguments that I don't know if we'll have time to get into was the idea of if we extend this conversation around ownership, it centers around intellectual property ownership and how that Mm -hmm. can be better supported and enforced uh, really globally. Because to me, it seems to me right now, uh, only China is giving the U.S. a run for its money. Uh, You know, it seems to me that American companies by default have global IP enforcement. And yet, mm-hmm. if you're an African company, you often struggle to even get global recognition, uh, let alone in, in, in Africa for your own innovation. So that is just a big gap and can be addressed outright by African governments just beginning to be more enforceful of, of their own IP, as, is, as has been the case in India and, and China. Because all of a sudden, you're forced to now negotiate on equal terms as opposed to saying, oh, no, by default, only U.S. COVID vaccines are valid, only U.S. aid vaccines are valid. I think that's just the wrong way to do things. And, and I, perhaps as an upside to COVID, if there is any, it's, it's exposing all those fundamental fallacies of the traditional way we were doing business or innovating. Well, maybe you want to elaborate then on ownership, because... When I hear the word ownership, I do tend to associate it with more of the individualistic ideology. And um, for example, uh, in North America and any country that's been colonized, really, that was devastating. The Uh idea that that ownership could completely um, wipe out the legacy of what existed before simply because somebody traded an object for land or whatever it was. Right. But I think when you talk about ownership, you're specifically, or maybe I'm wrong here, but you're specifically talking about IP, so intellectual property. Maybe partially right. So I think, welcome to my world. Uh, <laughs> and I mean that in a serious way. I think I'm always now, always thinking in two ways. I think technically and I'm thinking philosophically in the background. Mm-hmm. So again, ownership, just like cashless society, ought to have two definitions. Well, one we could say is the Western or capitalistic way that has to do with uh, rights of ownership, which right. can then be backed by legal documents. By legal, we then mean some kind of governmental institution, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is in direct conflict with communal ownership all exactly. across Asia and, and most countries. I think China then becomes the only successful government that has legitimized communal ownership and actually outpaced uh, a capitalistic ownership structure. So China to date files more patents and trademarks than any other Western company or country. Mm. China today owns a lot of IP that is critical to the future of innovation in biomedical research and other areas. Uh, And I think that shows that it's possible in Africa. A lot of universities, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in Africa, when they have their own innovation, it's in collaboration with the European institutions who often then trademark that IP in the UK and in other countries. And so mm-hmm. it never really benefits the continent. Okay. Yeah. So when we talk 
in the legal definition of ownership, yes, it has to do with IP. It has to do with some kind of title or deed on land. But as history has shown, that's not the big deal. You know why? Because governments rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall. So the authority behind a deed or a title isn't necessarily permanent or is not Mm -hmm. as absolute as we think. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want clarification, ask people who've lived under colonialism, ask people who live in Taiwan under maybe Chinese influence, ask people, you know, jurisdictions change from time to time. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll be, uh, I won't play the naivety game of pretending that doesn't matter. So, so mm-hmm. they, 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 let me quickly address the non-technical yeah. definition of ownership, which is really what is self-incentivizing. It's the co-creation ownership mm-hmm. of you own something merely by thinking it, merely by creating it, merely by participating in it. And that's the ideal definition of cashless because it's forget the, forget the title first. We can get that to operate in a legal world because that's, we all have so, to answer to some king or queen or government. But before that, how do I trust you? You're in Canada. I'm in New York. I'm Ugandan. Before we even get to those jurisdictional concerns, how do we establish trust between each other? And that's somewhat philosophical. It, sometimes it's not purely technical. And so the ownership comes from co-creation and participation and being visible and seen and being a member of a society. And, and I think that's becoming increasingly more and more relevant uh, to a lot of solutions where if you look at the internet, the memes, if you look at the, the Reddit uh, uh, anti-Wall Street <laughs> campaign to say mm-hmm. if Wall Street wants to think this company is not worth buying, we're going to put our cents and pennies together and say no, uh, the game stock is a uh, GameStop stock is actually worth buying. And guess <laughs> yes. what? For a moment, they won. Obviously, yes. Wall Street was protected by the government and it didn't last long. But it's that kind of individual activism that I'm seeing more and more of, where despite the underlying, one could say, oppressive legal structures, the cultural or philosophical drive often perseveres. Because it's those values that then become embedded in a technology or the way you use it. So what's Twitter without its users? What's PayPal without its merchants? What's a bank without its customers? And by the way, what's a government without its citizens? Mm-hmm. So whatever the jurisdiction is, it's not as permanent as the will of the people, as the relevance of, of, of the innovation or the ownership of a society that is uh, subjective to that jurisdiction. This is really, really interesting, and uh, I'm really enjoying your your conversation. If you wanted people to take away one idea from this conversation, mm-hmm. what do you think is the most powerful idea or relevant idea that you'd like people to remember? Uh, I'll say three ideas. I would say that technology is neutral. Uh, and it's us human beings who actually have values and influence or create technology. And so we need to often look at ourselves, look in the mirror, look at ourselves first before we blame mm-hmm. technology because we create it, we use it, we regulate it. So it comes back to in, uh, human accountability. Uh, number two, that individuals have a role. And uh, so mm-hmm. individual agency is, is, is going to be more and more important than anything. 
uh, we can, thanks to the internet, we have an opportunity to teach ourselves things we did not know. So mm-hmm. ignorance is not an excuse. And more importantly, maybe say that one more time. Ignorance is not an excuse. Is not an excuse anymore <laughs> because we have opportunity to ask questions across yes. borders and cultures. Um, we a lot of us are lucky to live in cities or urban areas uh, to go to schools that now have international students. So like you can learn about a country, you can host somebody for dinner, for coffee. There's so much we could do to just learn about the world, even if it's being censured online. <laughs> There's still somebody in your community, uh, what what other people call a human library that's yeah. there that you may not know of. So keep asking those questions. Uh, and more importantly, know that your own personal development benefits society, uh, mm-hmm. whether you believe it or not. But believe in yourself and keep asking those questions. And then uh, most importantly, I would say the big takeaway for policymakers or innovators or anybody who thinks they are ready to change the world, which is hard, or change their community, is uh, don't do it for the money. It costs money to create change. I'm not dismissing the financial cost or need for uh, budgets and and, and expenses to be met uh, to reliably create the long-lasting institutions, but it's the values behind um, the need for a solution that make it last when the money runs out or when the community's needs evolve, um, how do you adapt that solution to meet the new needs? And so the human values um, or company values or your own personal values should often lead, even though they are about to, they might evolve over time, they should be the foundation for the way you do things and the way you innovate and the way you lead, because ultimately that's your biggest contribution to society. Asinja, what's next for you and how can people reach you to learn more or or follow you? What's next is I believe either by the end of the year or sometime next year, I'm going to be somebody in the investment space, just taking my time (laughs) to build the right relationships and and collaborate with the right entrepreneurs. Uh, But I think what's next is a a lifelong commitment to supporting the right ideas and, and hopefully helping deploy the right capital to them. People can find me on uh, my personal site, brianasinja.com, B-R-I-A-N-A-S-I-N-G-I-A.com. And the social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, and really anywhere is just at brianasinja. And uh, that's the best way to find everything. I'm pretty approachable. I'm, I'm on all online, most online platforms. I, I do value Uh, virtual speaking and other kind of engagements. So please reach out. Love to hear from you and continue this conversation. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I will include all of those handles and links within the show notes so that people can find you easily. And uh, I look forward to following you and seeing what you do next. Thank you, Jenna. If you love Access Ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas.